There it is. I'm Charles Holmes from The Ringer Music Show. And I'm Cole Kushner from Dissect. And Charles and I are teaming up to create Last Song Standing, a new show where we determine an artist's single best song by debating our way through their entire catalog. And for our first season, we're covering Kendrick Lamar. We're talking Good Kid to Pimple Butterfly, Damn, Mr. Morale, the mixtapes, the Lucy's, and the features. Listen to Last Song Standing on the Dissect podcast feed only on Spotify. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Essentia is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. I cannot in good conscience recommend to you the 1997 film Spawn based on the ultra nineties macabre blockbuster comic book series, greatly enjoyed by the scariest kid you knew in the eighth grade and starring Michael Jai White in the titular role of Spawn. Spawn was either the devil or a willing agent of the devil or an unwilling pawn of the devil or an outright antagonist, hardcore sassing, the devil, the details escape me. Those aren't details. A very basic plot description escapes me. What I can tell you with confidence is that Spawn had a dog. I do remember Spawn's cute little dog. I remember the dog's name, but I'd rather not say it, partly because of Beyonce, which sounds made up, but it's absolutely true. And I remember that at one point he goes to hell, Spawn, not the dog. And it seemed to me, as a grumpy and opinionated 19-year-old, sitting in a movie theater in 1997, that hell, depicted here using the finest computerized special effects 1997 had to offer, looked like trash. Hell looked like trash. I apologize if you worked on this movie. I'm sure you've done wonderful work subsequently uh, or maybe previously, but I need to live my pissy 19-year-old truth for a second here. Hell looked like what it would look like if you tried to play Doom the macabre first-person shooter video game Doom, on the oldest and shoddiest computer at a library in 1988. To even watch this movie, everyone sitting in the theater had to pick up and manually load a giant old-school floppy disk directly into the movie theater screen. The denizens of hell, the huddled masses, the damned, I think it was supposed to look like they were flailing or writhing, or what have you, but it looked to me like they were dancing. Hell looked like your meanest local librarian's false conception of what a rave looked like. You can check. You can watch this movie on Netflix right now. And you can also click on your profile pic in the upper right corner and then hit account and then click on your profile pic again and then click viewing activity and then click the Ghostbusters circle with it aligned through its symbol to hide spawn 
from your viewing history so that even the Netflix algorithm doesn't find out you were watching Spawn. Hell, as depicted in the movie Spawn, looked like a lower tier Las Vegas nightclub or my oblivious 19-year-old false conception of what a lower tier Las Vegas nightclub would look like. Possibly the filmmakers depicted hell that way on purpose, but I doubt it. Bad movie, okay? Which is not a crime against humanity. But I sure took it personally because the soundtrack to Spawn had led me to believe that this was going to be the raddest and most electrifyingly futuristic movie ever born. Yeah, the song Can't You Trip Like I Do, parentheses can't you, and parentheses trip like I do, a collaboration between the semi-industrial rock band Filter and the semi-rave-like electronic music duo The Crystal Method led me to believe that the Spawn movie was going to be better than fucking Blade Runner. I have no explanation for this. I was 19. That's the explanation. Hold on, though. Is it even possible... Have I really done 73 episodes of this dopey show and not yet discussed with you the wondrous world of 90s trash bro junk drawer action movie soundtracks? I haven't? Okay, that's my oversight, and I do apologize. Do you hear something? Do you hear that? I do. I approach the topic of 90s junk drawer action movie soundtracks in any situation, from any angle, and this song just starts playing as though I summoned or manifested it. Look out. It's Freak Mama. So this is Freak Mama. <laughs> A song title that I can totally say out loud without laughing and a dignified and absolutely necessary collaboration between the revered Seattle rock band Mud Honey and the also revered Seattle rapper Sir Mix-a-Lot. I want to put you in the mud, honey. You see what he did there? It's pretty good. As undoubtedly you are aware, Freak Mama appears on the unapologetically bonkers soundtrack to the 1993 film Judgment Night, which does not exist. This movie, that's right. I wrote a thing for The Ringer about 90s trash bro junk drawer action movie soundtracks, and I was proud to break the news that Judgment Night is not a real movie. No one you know has seen Judgment Night. I don't care if you say you've seen it, you are lying. Not a real movie. Judgment Night was a psyop if I am using that word correctly, a psyop to justify the existence of the unapologetically bonkers Judgment Night soundtrack, which mashed together rappers and rock bands the way a two-year-old smashes together random action figures. Bonk, bonk, bonk. Sonic Youth and Cypress Hill. Teenage Fan Club and De La Soul. Faith No More and Booyah Tribe. Pearl Jam and Cypress Hill. And who else? Who else? Oh, right. Mud Honey and Sir Mix-A-Lot. Oh, my God. Freak Mama led me to believe that Judgment Night was a cross between The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2, just the best film ever made, perpetually topping Sight & Sound magazine's once-a-decade poll 
of the greatest films of all time. I'm just kidding. Judgment Night is not a real movie. They made up the fake movie Judgment Night just to sell the real soundtrack to Judgment Night so they could try to get doofy, hard-rocking teenagers into rap music. Also, the greatest film of all time didn't come out until 1994. The Crow, on the other hand, is a real-ass movie. The Crow is the only movie. I saw The Crow in the theater as well. And when somebody, I think it was the bad guy, somebody in the movie was driving somewhere and The Big Empty by Stone Temple Pilots started playing on the car radio. And I had a sublime moment sitting in the theater of recognizing the song playing in the car on screen in the movie. I had a that's chappy moment if you are online enough to get that reference. And if you aren't and you don't, then God bless you truly. Remember how rad Stone Temple Pilots drummer Eric Kretz's drum fill is during the last chorus of The Big Empty? Of course you do. That's so rad. The Crow soundtrack on which Nine Inch Nails covers Joy Division Henry Rollins, the Rollins Band, covers Suicide. Pantera covers Poison Idea. And The Cure, Rage Against the Machine, The Jesus and Mary Chain, and My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult are mashed together at last. The Crow soundtrack was a foundational piece of my identity when I was 16. Best 20 bucks I ever spent. The Crow soundtrack. Gloomy, but accessible. Violent, but harmless. Surly, but sensitive. Goth, but not really. Hard but also pretty funny if you thought about it too hard. Sing it, Henry. Hilarious. A sequel called The Crow, Colon, City of Angels arrived in 1996, and I saw that movie in the theater as well, but I don't remember anything about it except that Iggy Pop was in it. But soundtrack-wise, the bad news is this time we get Bush covering Joy Division. The better news is there is a filter song called Jurassitol, where the guy from Filter just complains about old people, the financial burden of old people. It's a pretty good song. The much better news is we get Hole covering Fleetwood Mac's Gold Dust Woman. And the very best news is we get White Zombie covering I'm Your Boogeyman by Casey and the Sunshine Band. Sing it, Rob Zombie. Hilarious on purpose. I could bombard you with stupid 90s alt-rock movie soundtrack arcana for the rest of the day, but I won't, probably, because all you really need to know is that in the 90s, when kids were still buying CDs, and buying CDs was the only reliable way to get access to individual songs, Crow-style junk drawer alternative music soundtracks had a fun little moment that cost you $20 a pop to experience there are quote-unquote prestige alternative soundtracks from this era singles clueless train spotting but nowadays i'm drawn to the dumbest and least prestigious examples imaginable did you know that divinals the australian band that brought you i touch myself did you know that divinals covered roxy music's love is the drug for the soundtrack 
to the unfortunately very real 1993 film Super Mario Brothers, based on the quite popular and not at all macabre platforming video game with Bob Hoskins in the titular role of Mario. I'm going to level with you. I never saw that movie, and I've never been able to bring myself to actually listen to Divinals covering Love is the Drug. Let's listen to it for the first time together. Let's do it and be legends. That's always been my favorite part of that song. In my years as a single man, I often fantasized about approaching a single lady and I just say go and she just say yes. Obviously, it never happened. As with Judgment Night, these soundtracks were also designed to get dumbass vanilla rock and roll loving teenagers such as myself to listen to some other kinds of music for a change. These trashy movie soundtracks were trial balloons for whole ass musical genres. And so it was in 1997 when the Spawn soundtrack tried to get America hooked on a fun new style called Electronica. Filter and the Crystal Method really vibed together, I have to admit. It's 1997 and rock is dead. FYI, electronica is the future. Electronic music, dance music, rave, big beat. Call it whatever you want as long as you also slap down a $20 bill and buy it. The Spawn soundtrack is a marginally less bonkers Judgment Night sort of deal. Metallica and DJ Spooky. The Butthole Surfers and Moby, Corn and the Dust Brothers, Marilyn Manson and the Sneaker Pimps who hated each other, FYI. Oh, hey, it's our old friend Henry Rollins. And now he's hooked up with the rad jungle DJ and producer Goldie. That song's called T4 Strain. It's about marijuana and damnation. Also on the Spawn soundtrack, this occurs. The song is called One Man Army, no hyphen, all caps, a righteous collaboration between Rage Against the Machine guitar god Tom Morello and The Prodigy, the English electronic music group, The Prodigy. That's Prodigy vocalist Maxim rapping there, inviting you to taste the back of his crystal fist. This is the song that's playing in the Spawn movie when Spawn goes to trash hell. That's probably not true. I have no idea. The guitar solo is pretty silly and totally dope, though, because of course it is. Listen, One Man Army is not the best song on the Spawn soundtrack. The song featuring Slayer and Atari Teenage Riot is better. But in 1997, you couldn't try to convince dumbass teenagers that rock and roll was dead and they maybe ought to get into electronic music instead without getting the prodigy involved. Sometimes soundtracks work like this. Throw in a mediocre song, if only to remind people of that artist's life-changing 
Transcendent song. The Spawn movie came out on August 1st, 1997, just a couple weeks earlier. In mid-July, The Prodigy had the number one album in America called The Fat of the Land. If you were a dumbass teenager at the time, maybe you'd forgotten that title. But not this one. I'm a fire starter, Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bell one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 12-31-24. Excludes tax must update to rewards. My name is Rob Harvilla. This is the 74th episode of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. And this week we are discussing Firestarter by The Prodigy. A while back we tweeted out a poll where you could vote for the song in an upcoming episode of this show. And the options included Firestarter, Bittersweet Symphony, You Can't Touch This, Fucking Run, Tub Thumping, Shoop, Only Want to Be With You, It Was a Good Day, Stay, I Miss You, and Live in La Vida Loca. And Firestarter did not win, but I'm doing it anyway, because do you know who I am? On the face you That's right. That's who I am. I'm the bitch you hated. Filth infatuated. Yeah. The Prodigy are based in the town of Braintree in Essex, England, northeast of London. Almost anything written about the Prodigy feels compelled to mention that Essex is a poorly regarded region of England. Rolling Stone basically called it the New Jersey of England. That's rude. I don't want to go there now but it's still rude the prodigy at their height here in the firestarter era consisted of four guys you got liam howlett who did everything uh, musically the musician the producer the primary songwriter the obvious leader the quiet dictator you got maxim the, with a crystal fist formerly maxim reality maxim is a vocalist and occasional mc you got the dancer leroy thornhill when the prodigy make the cover of rolling stone in august 1997 that article will describe leroy thornhill with the brief parenthetical quote who is unfeasibly tall and dances end quote that's it unfeasibly tall and dances i quite liked that description. A couple of years earlier in a Mix Mag article about the prodigy, Leroy Thornhill is described as rye and lanky and opting for steak. That's it. Leroy had a great gig, it appears. You know how everyone talks about the guy in the Mighty Mighty Boston's who just danced, the official Mighty Mighty Boston's dancer? That guy and Leroy had it all figured out. Who else? Who else? Ah, yes. Finally, you got Keith Flint, who also danced in The Prodigy until he became a singer, a frontman. 
a generational focal point, a self-inflicted mind detonator. Firestarter was the first song Keith Flint ever sang on record. And Firestarter is the reason that when the prodigy made the cover of Rolling Stone, it's just Keith Flint on the cover. The article written by Chris Heath takes great pains to describe Keith Flint's current hair situation. Quote, his hair, looking from the front and transcribing from left to right, currently goes green, flat, green, towering spike, black, flat, blonde, flat, black, flat, orange, towering spike, blonde, flat, end quote. Plus the raccoon eyes, uh, the pitch black coal makeup around Keith's eyes, and the nose piercing, among other piercings. Keith Flint was a delightfully alarming-looking human. He passed away in 2019 in what was reportedly, but not quite officially ruled, a death by suicide. He was 49. He was the fire starter, the twisted fire starter. In this circumstance, I always debate whether to mention a death like this immediately or wait until later, but I usually decide to say it right away so it doesn't seem like some stupid dramatic reveal. So I'm going to let Keith Flint describe for you the scene, the environment, the lifestyle from which the prodigy emerged in late 80s, early 90s, rave scene England. This is Keith talking to Rolling Stone about his concern that the colossal rave scene in England has gotten over-colossal and watered down and commodified and sullied by empty lifestyle signifiers. Just forget it's me talking. This is Keith talking. Quote, The emergence of the glow stick, silver foil, glittery face paint, and the future... Then people were talking about the internet. That hasn't got any fucking thing to do with the party scene. Fuck the internet. Fuck playstations. We broke into warehouses, right? We parked our cars in main roads. Ten cars wide, a thousand cars thick, with people leaning out of their windows at one in the morning going, You can't park there. Fuck you. I'm going to park here. Take my car away. I don't want my car. I'm going to get in that building, and I want to party. And you used to run to this building, dodging police and stuff, and dive in through the window and lock the windows up. And then the riot police used to turn up with the helmets and the sticks and the dogs and the shields. And you used to party until you were dragged out of that place. And that has got nothing to do with silver foil and circuit boards and fucking craft work. It was the rebellion. The rebellion knowing that you was a part of something that in many years' time is going to be as romantic to a young person as the hippie person was in the 60s, end quote. So, however far behind you think America was in terms of the gigantic scale, mass market, 10 cars wide and 1,000 cars thick embrace of the rave scene, of dance music, of the infinite and celestial possibility of ecstasy-fueled electronic music, America was farther behind than you think. America sucked at this forever. Wow, we sucked. America was the Essex, England of the world in terms of wrapping our puny little minds around the life-changing glories of dance music. In Chicago, we got incredible people literally inventing house music. In Detroit, we got incredible people literally inventing techno. In most of the rest of the United States, we got people with no fucking idea of the seismic importance of what's happening in Chicago and Detroit. Am I overgeneralizing? Maybe. Am I nervously projecting my own sheepish, youthful ignorance onto the entire country? No. America is late to this party. 
All right. America very much gets to the party eventually, of course. Let me enthusiastically recommend to you the 2016 book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America by the great critic and author Michelangelo Matos. But we're late. America, historically. In that Rolling Stone article, Leroy Thornhill, who is unfeasibly tall and dances, is being interviewed by some other journalist who says, there's a buzz that you could be the future of rock and roll in America. What do you feel about that? And Leroy says, we could be dead tomorrow. We're not the future of nothing. Take us for what we are now. America is 10 years behind the dance scene anyway. End quote. Rude but accurate, Leroy. The Fat of the Land in 1997 is The Prodigy's third full-length album. But it's not just that America was slow to catch on to The Prodigy. It's that we were slow to catch on to the idea of The Prodigy as the charismatic and boorish knuckleheads who were going to ruin the rave scene for everybody. Firestarter is not the first Prodigy song that allegedly gets too huge for its own good or for society's own good. No, that honor would go to the first Prodigy song. Oh, wow. So this song is called Charlie. Charlie with a Y. And it is the Prodigy's first single released in August 1991. Liam Hallett grows up in Essex. The first musical group he ever loves is The Specials, the great English ska revival crew. Rolling Stone says he remembers how hard they looked on the back cover with the trilbies and the suits and the shades and the missing teeth. They had that attitude and edge. He never really liked anything that was truly mainstream, and he never has. End quote. Young Liam loved early rap music. He loved Grandmaster Flash. Young Liam's first concert ever was Africa Bombada and Word of Mouth at Wembley Stadium. Young Liam was an aspiring b-boy, a breakdancer, a hip-hop producer. That aspiration didn't go so well for Liam. So back to Braintree he went where he bought himself a fancy keyboard, a Roland W30 sampler workstation, and voila, Charlie with a Y. And the good news is that young Liam Howlett gets to be on the cover of a magazine. He appears... In August 1992, on the cover of the famed British dance music publication Mixmag. The bad news is, Liam is on the cover of Mixmag holding a gun to his head. Above the headline, The Prodigy, Did Charlie Kill Rave? With a question mark. The old journalism rule, if the headline is a question, the answer is no, applies here. But nonetheless, Liam was quite displeased. A future Prodigy video for the song Fire will feature the members of The Prodigy huddled around a campfire consisting of old copies of Mixmag. Fair enough, but it's true enough that Charlie kicks off a quite disconcerting trend of dance music novelty singles coyly sampling children's programming. I do apologize for this. But here we have the English rave group Smarties, Smart Capital E's, performing their minor hit Sesame's Treat. That's T-R-E-E-T. Do you see the various things they did there. 
Sorry about that. I am sorry. I'm just illustrating a point. I do apologize. So this whole Mix Mag article is basically yelling at the prodigy for pushing the underground UK rave scene catastrophically overground. Now it's mainstream. Now it's lame. Now you can't even go out anymore because you're surrounded by bandwagon hopping dopes who want to hear the Sesame Street song. And my favorite part of this interview is when Keith Flint... At this point, still just the alarming looking dancer responding to this idea of wishing raves could go back underground. He says, let's be quite honest. Bosh a few E's down your neck and you're somewhere else anyway. Drugs fuck you up. If you go out somewhere and you take three E's, for instance, you go to such a different planet that whether you're in 89 or 92, I don't think there's going to be much difference. End quote. Accurate. Keith. The first Prodigy album comes out in 1992 and is called Experience. That song is called Wind It Up. Notably, the video for Wind It Up is footage of the Prodigy touring America in the early 90s, hanging out at Randy's Donuts in L.A. and so forth with a giant donut on the roof. Some people in America were clued into the Prodigy immediately, just not not a ton of people. So it's fundamentally misunderstanding the whole point of music like this, to even talk about music like this in terms of full-length albums, in terms of auteurs like Liam Howlett, certainly in terms of flashy frontmen like Keith Flint. Let me also enthusiastically recommend the book Energy Flash, A Journey Through Rave Music and Dance Culture by the great English critic and author Simon Reynolds. It first came out in 1998. In America, at first, it was called Generation Ecstasy into the World of Techno and Rave Culture. Simon has since updated the book a couple times to address the EDM of it all. So early on in Energy Flash, Simon writes about his early experiences going to raves. And he says, it was some revelation to experience this music in its proper context as a component in a system. It was an entirely different and unrock way of using music, the anthemic track rather than the album the total flow of the DJ's mix, the alternative media of pirate radio and specialist record stores, music as a synergistic partner with drugs, and the whole magic, tragic cycle of living for the weekend and paying for it with a midweek come down. There was a liberating joy in surrendering to the radical anonymity of the music and not caring about the names of tracks or artists. The meaning of the music pertained to the macro level of the entire culture, and it was so much huger than the sum of its parts. End quote. The prodigy, from the onset, threaten that system, that culture, because they give people the idea to sample the Sesame Street theme. But more to the point, the prodigy are just too charismatic too singular, too unignorable as individuals. They have a tangible rock star magnetism and a scene hostile to the very notion of rock star magnetism. When the prodigies show up early in his book, Energy Flash, Simon writes, despite their exhilarating merger of underground energy and pop appeal, the prodigy were regarded as hopelessly uncool by tastemakers. End quote. But then again, 
you'd think this was a culture at least theoretically hostile to the very notion of tastemakers. But of course, you can't really keep tastemakers away from anything. That's a song called Out of Space. Uh, the sampled reggae singer is the great Max Romeo. The sampled rapper there is the great Cool Keith. Back in his 80s, ultra-magnetic MCs days. Cool Keith in particular is a patron saint of the prodigy. The experience record hangs together tremendously well as a whole. And 1992 was not necessarily flush with dance music records from anybody anywhere that hung together tremendously well as a whole. But Liam Howlett, renegade auteur, feels the sting of a major magazine accusing him of killing Rave. The second Prodigy record, released in 1994 and called Music for a Jilted Generation and featuring a cover that recently spooked my 11-year-old son, begins like this. So, I've decided to take my work back underground to stop it falling into the wrong hands. Make a note of it. This song's called Their Law. That's not Keith Flint quite yet. That's a guy from the English rave rock band Pop Will Eat Itself. The um and fuck em is Parliament. The UK governing body, not George Clinton's parliament. The law in their law is the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act of 1994, which sought to clamp down on raves of the fuck you, take my car, I'm going to get in that warehouse and party variety. The fact that this song, their law, sounds here in 1994 like the 1997 Let's Bong Some DJs and Rock Bands Together Spawn soundtrack is, you know, notable. Here's what it sounds like to be ahead of your time. This is somewhat hacky of me, but I will live my truth and concede to you that while listening to music for a jilted generation and a song called Poison in particular, the words that kept flashing into my head were Dirtbag DJ Shadow. Ooh, this song too, called Three Kilos. This song started a run of smash rave singles that featured flutes. I'm just kidding. I'm probably kidding. The drums there are sampled from Good Livin', parentheses, Good Lovin', by Bernard Purdy, the godlike soul drummer, Bernard Purdy, one of the greatest drummers ever born. The Prodigy, this whole project is a spectacular midair collision between bad taste and unbelievably fantastic taste. The first two Prodigy records are pretty great. The first two Prodigy records sell jack shit in America. No offense to the Prodigy. No offense to America. We're talking 1992, 93, 94, when rock is not dead. America's got bigger fish to fry. By 1995, though, we got, you know, calamities. Rock in the classic sense, 
classic rock in the current sense is getting worse, is getting deader. Meanwhile, dance music, however you choose to define and categorize it, is getting increasingly fantastic. This song is called Chemical Beats from our dear friends, the Chemical Brothers, a jovial English duo whose first album called Exit Planet Dust comes out in 95. I think it was last summer I was blasting this song through headphones while doing suburban ass yard work. My kids were running around my front yard with the neighbor's kids. They're all having a squirt gun fight or whatever. We're deep into COVID already, so I'm not used to seeing my kids play with other kids. And I get weirdly verklempt about it. Right. And I had this odd sort of euphoric, it's summer feeling. I was not rolling on E, obviously. I was rolling on iced coffee. I tell you this because I figure you deserve to know how I personally am usually processing this music. Shut up and drop the beat, Rob. So Michelangelo Matos, who wrote that book, The Underground is Massive, also wrote a great piece for NPR back in 2011 called How the Major Labels Sold Electronica to America. And he talks about how Rick Rubin, super producer and rap rock godfather Rick Rubin, almost signed The Prodigy around 93 after their first record, but then didn't. Liam Howitt was very into that idea. Prodigy were on Electra Records in the United States back then. And Liam says, I didn't like being on Electra Records because they were always trying to get shit remixes done by people we didn't like. Rick came to our LA gig. We were like, shit, man, Rick Rubin is here. I wanted his autograph. I grew up on the records he produced. End quote. Rick Rubin teaming up with the Prodigy would have been rad. It also would have been the broiest thing imaginable, but so be it. Too bad didn't happen. So the Chemical Brothers break in America first with Exit Planet Dust here in 1995 to a modest but quite noticeable degree. The term of art, the semi-corny genre name assigned to the Chemical Brothers at this point is Big Beat. The NPR piece quotes Norman Cook, the DJ in Brighton, England club impresario, soon to be better known as Fatboy Slim. And Norman says, the name came from our club, the Big Beat Boutique, which I'm tremendously proud of. I always thought the formula of Big Beat was the breakbeats of hip-hop, the energy of Acid House, and the pop sensibilities of the Beatles, with a little bit of punk sensibility, all rolled into one. People like the Prodigy and the Chemical Brothers. We saw it as very similar to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, who grew up listening to soul records and blues records, and then sold an English version of it back to America. End quote. In April 1997, the Chemical Brothers put out their second record called Dig Your Own Hole, which is the closest any full-length album in this universe gets to being a masterpiece. In my opinion, even though this is not a realm with much interest in full-length masterpieces. But anyway, Dig Your Own Hole finds the Chemical Brothers taking the whole Beatles thing quite seriously. Yes, indeed, that setting sun with lead vocals from your friend and mine, Noel Gallagher, he of Oasis, a legit rock star. How about that? That song's already a modest hit by the time Dig Your Own Hole 
comes out. Setting Sun is a cutting-edge crossover-type single in 1996, and it's got some company. Yes, indeed, that's Born Slippy from the British dance rockers Underworld with quite cryptic earworm-type lead vocals from the group's own Carl Hyde. Sorry, the full title there would be Born Slippy Nuxx. The original version of that song is a few years old when that version suddenly blew up in 1996 as part of the Train Spotting soundtrack. Speaking of prestige movie soundtracks or more prestigious than Spawn movie soundtracks. Underworld had already made a couple rad albums, too, at this point. I'm a dub with no bass with my head man, man myself. But here's where Underworld really start to get their due internationally. We got ourselves an exciting and vibrant and new to most of America and not at all dead-sounding subgenre, folks. And if calling it electronica is what it takes to sell it to America, then God bless. But if you want to sell tons of records in America... You need rock stars in the abstract, if not literal, rock and roll sense. But fortunately, this surly little fucker comes out and blows up in 1996 as well. So Firestarter quite famously and quite lucratively uh, samples the breeders the beloved by me and also many other people dayton alt rock band the breeders firestarter samples a quite random feeling surfish guitar riff from the breeder song sos one of the less radio friendly tunes on the band's cataclysmic 1993 album last splash that's the album with cannonball on it as I hope you are aware. The song SOS, by comparison, doesn't seem to have blockbuster potential, but Liam Howlett, as we've established, has fantastic taste. And Liam hears something transcendent in this, and then he does something transcendent with it. I'll be honest and say that at first the breeder sample on Firestarter felt extraneous to me. Like the song didn't need the sample necessarily. And maybe Liam was just being nice to Kim Deal and her beloved by me, especially Dayton alt rock band, the breeders, but listening a little more intensely to Firestarter now. Yeah, this song needs that guitar part. And it's awfully fulfilling to listen very intensely to Firestarter now and to picture nicer furniture just materializing in Kim Deal's house anytime this song starts playing somewhere. The Hey 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 is sampled as well from the 1984 song Close to the Edit by the much weirder electronic rock group Art of Noise. So specifically, talking to the Onion AV Club in 2009, Kim Deal said of the Prodigy song Firestarter, quote, it did really well. And since I own like a quarter of the song, it felt like, wow, it's like, gosh, where's this money coming from? She also said, you know, it's like, now I root for them since they used a song of mine. Now I'm like, you go, guys. It's like I'm in the biology club 
and they're on the football team, you know, end quote. Kim Deal is the best, but let's not kid ourselves. Firestarter ain't Firestarter until this guy declares himself the Firestarter, among many other honorary titles. This always sounded like mythologizing record industry bullshit to me, but the rumor is that when the Firestarter video aired for the first time on the massive BBC show Top of the Pops, that the station got a record number of viewer complaints. Not because the Firestarter video is terrifically offensive. It's basically just black and white footage of Keith Flint stomping around in an old London underground tunnel, but just because Keith Flint as I believe I've mentioned, is a delightfully alarming-looking human. So stuffy English people were basically just calling the BBC and going, please get that scary-looking man off my television, which is fantastic, even if it is mythologizing record industry bullshit. The author and radio host and record executive Dan Charnas is quoted in that NPR piece on Electronica in America, and he says, The prodigy proved that you can actually do pop records in techno. As for the video, he says, I thought it was dope. All hell broke loose. The crazy-ass white dude was like Flavor Flav, only for techno. End quote. We're playing the I'm the bitch you hated part again. Let's get nuts. I'm the bitch you hated. In the Prodigy Rolling Stone cover story, Keith Flint talks quite a bit about the lyrics to this song and their profound importance to him. So the article says, Flint highlights both the self-inflicted line and the I'm the bitch you hated. They're both ways that he thinks of himself. It's quite deep, he mutters. I don't know if I want to say. He eyes the tape recorder. I could explain it to you, but I wouldn't for the magazine. The writer says, Listening to you spit out those words, you get the feeling of energy and joy mixed up with self-hate. And Keith says, that's absolutely spot on. That's absolutely spot on. The writer says, I'm the bitch you hated. That's a very weird thing to say about yourself. And Keith says, yeah, I don't know that I'd want to describe it. That is a very deep thing to me personally, and I can deliver that with far more power than the other lyrics. Keith is asked what compelled him, after several years dancing with the Prodigy, to become a singer as well. And he says, that's unexplainable. Why does a river turn into an oxbow lake? I've spent six years expressing myself with my body, shouting with my body. It's like a conductor of the music. From the party scene, when a tune came on and it was your tune, I wanted everyone to know it was my tune. Yes, fucking hell, rocking, just yelling at each other dancing away this is just an extension of that if i could get a mic and just go fucking hell fucking hell i would do it that is the punk attitude diy aspect of the prodigy keith also observes i'm not a singer i love the fact that there's people out there that have been trying since the age of nine to sing and get the voice right do re me and all that and i can roar in not ever written anything or performed lyrically anything and write a tune that's so successful. I think that's a brilliant piss take on a lot of people, and that gives me a buzz. 
And finally, Liam Howlett is asked by the Rolling Stone writer to comment on the British tabloid headline, Ban This Sick Fire Record, in an article that accuses the song Firestarter of inciting actual pyromania. And Liam says, I just couldn't believe it. I was more shocked than how well the record did, to be honest. I just couldn't believe how people could be so stupid. It was then that I realized that the prodigy works on two levels, a dumb level and the intelligent level. End quote. Let's briefly explore the dumb level, shall we? So Firestarter is a huge hit in 1996 in the third Prodigy album, The Fat of the Land, comes out in June 1997. And the first song once again samples the rapper Cool Keith in his ultra-magnetic MC's days. And this new song is called, Indeed, Smack My Bitch Up. I have a vague but cherished memory of reading a Prodigy interview somewhere around this time where somebody, either Liam or Keith, argued that Smack My Bitch Up doesn't literally mean what it means but in fact it's just slang for like let's get excited guys i don't remember the details but i do remember reading that and even as a dumbass kid being like oh get the fuck out of here the bad news is that's what the song's called the worst news is this is a monster hook So right there in 1997, the earliest version of MTV.com quotes Janice Rocco, president of the Los Angeles chapter of Now, the National Organization for Women, as saying, the song is totally offensive. It's degrading to women. It's trash. It condones violence against women. And we don't need to see that portrayed as entertainment. End quote. And then MTV quotes Liam Howlett, talking to the early music website Addicted to Noise. And Liam says... That song is probably the most pointless song I've ever written, but live, it works. It works well. Sometimes things can be so fucking simple and you don't need an explanation of the lyrics. Why explain the lyrics? It either works or it doesn't. And for us, it works well live. It's a really exciting track and it's just a good, hard track. He also says, to be honest, we're ready for whatever is thrown at us. You can't not be ready and use a lyric like that. To be honest, people, if they think that song is about smacking girlfriends up, then they're pretty brainless. End quote. And then comes the worst news yet, which is the Smack My Bitch Up video. I don't believe that singer has ever been publicly credited, which is too bad. Or maybe she's better off. My Kingdom for video footage on YouTube or whatever of MTV's own Kurt Loder introducing the mega controversial Jonas Ackerlund video for Smack My Bitch Up. I think I remember watching this video on MTV, but I'm suspicious. I might be making that up. MTV played the Smack My Bitch Up video for like one week, only between the hours of 1 and 5 a.m. And it was preceded by a sweaty disclaimer in which Kurt Loder said, 
MTV is about to air a video that some people are not going to want to see. It depicts a violent and chaotic night world fueled by drugs and alcohol and sexual aggression. It is relentlessly lurid and contains full frontal nudity. If this sounds like something you'd rather miss, please tune out now. End quote. But see, spoiler alert, the person in the video doing all the drugs and violence and displaying all the sexual aggression turns out to be a lady. A very naked lady. This was mind-blowing shit in 1997. Have I mentioned yet that the Prodigy are at this point on Madonna's record label? Maverick Records. Have I also mentioned that the liner notes to the Fat of the Land CD include a quote about importing guns or butter that is, in fact, a quote from literally a Nazi leader, Hermann Goring? Have I mentioned that Liam Howlett thusly felt compelled to tell the press to simply answer that question? Yes, the quote is a Nazi quote. And no, we're not Nazis. Obviously, we've got two black guys in the band. So to even suggest that is totally brainless anyway. To be honest, that quote is like me using a sample. I look upon that quote as like a sample. I take it out of its original context, put it in my own context, and it means something completely different. I look at that quote, and that's like a b-boy quote. That's like something out of a hip-hop scene could have said that. End quote. Big yikes to all of this. I'm all for artistic expression and provocation and whatnot, but even in the context of ultra-doofus rock stardom, ideally you are never compelled by circumstances to actually say the words, yes, the quote is a Nazi quote, and no, we're not Nazis out loud. That is, unfortunately, historically, very punk rock, but the bad kind of punk rock. Good gravy. All of this bullshit may very well complicate one's enjoyment of the Prodigy album, The Fat of the Land, which is no dig your own hole, as album length masterpieces go, but it's quite enjoyable nonetheless. Both this song, Breathe, and Smack My Bitch Up now have more plays on Spotify than Firestarter does, which intrigues me given how much huger Firestarter loomed on MTV and whatnot at the time. But I see the appeal. That's our pal Keith Flynn, of course, further coming into his own as a rock star frontman. And our pal Maxim is, too. Maxim does the psychosomatic addict insane part. I never picked up on that. Excellent rapport, those two. It seems inevitable, in retrospect, that this entire set of circumstances was not sustainable and that there's nothing more punk rock than flaming out spectacularly. If provocation is your whole deal, you got to feed the beast. It gets exhausting. So in 1998, there's a mild blow up at the Reading Festival where both the Prodigy and the Beastie Boys are on the bill. So early Beastie Boys, Rick Rubin era, boorish, offensive on accident, but not really Beastie Boys are a pretty explicit model for the prodigy, nobody on earth fought harder for their right to party than Keith Flint. But by 1998, as we have discussed, the Beastie Boys have renounced their boorishness, their misogyny, their rampant unenlightenment. Now there's a whole deal because the Beastie Boys try to convince the prodigy to not play Smack My Bitch Up at the Reading Festival. Privately, they ask the prodigy not to play it. And the prodigy, quite publicly, announced this from the stage and play it anyway. That's worth a few headlines. That bolsters one's punk rock credibility, I suppose. 
But meanwhile, electronica as a genre, as a sweaty marketing scheme, ain't going to cut it for long. Electronic music itself, dance music, EDM, uh, the music will be fine. But the further you can get from quote-unquote electronica, the better. The Chemical Brothers press on. Underworld presses on. Daft Punk, right? The first Daft Punk record, Homework, also comes out in 1997. And Daft Punk go on to do various notable Daft Punk things. But they feel tangential to the whole brief, this is rock and roll now moment that Firestarter exemplifies. There is overlap. I was listening to Daft Punk's Homework yesterday and this song, Rollin' and Scratchin', struck me as smack my bitch up without the uh, unpleasant context which is to say without any of the words. And overall, to my mind, Daft Punk are not bound, are not tethered to this brief and strange electronica moment the way the Prodigy are. For the Prodigy, the dumb level began to overshadow the smart level. It takes a while for them to even attempt to follow up the fat of the land. And in 2002, the prodigy put out a single called Babies Got a Temper. This shit was baffling. Just baffling. I have a vivid memory of listening to this song for the first time and just being like, what the fuck? is happening that song is pretty quickly disowned more or less the next full prodigy record always outnumbered never outgunned doesn't come out until 2004 and keith flynn and max remain on it at all and although both those guys do contribute to the next prodigy record 2009's invaders must die in terms of pure momentum and defensible artistic decisions the fat of the land is kind of the end of the line keith flint loved motorbikes and owned a motorcycle racing team. For a while, he also ran a pub in good old Essex. And he did an interview once where he said that the pub had a fireplace. And every time he lit it, somebody would make a fire starter joke. And then he'd make whoever made that joke pay him a dollar. And then he'd give all the money to charity. I read that in Keith Flint's New York Times obituary. The year Keith Flint died in 2019, I was supposed to see the Prodigy live at a giant, chaotic, hard rock festival in Columbus, Ohio. My brother went with me and reminded me of this. The Prodigy were replaced on the bill by Papa Roach. And Papa Roach, quite cordially, paid tribute. Mr. Keith Flint, the fire starter! My friends, I'm here to tell you in front of God and everyone that Papa Roach covering Firestarter sounded way better and made way more sense than I suspect you suspected it would. Is the Papa Roach guy doing an English accent? Kind of, he is, isn't he? That's too bad. That's a questionable decision. But I suspect that the original Twisted Firestarter, wherever he was, looked down upon that mildly entertaining, questionable decision and recognized himself and smiled.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our guest this week is Jeremy Larson, reviews editor at Pitchfork. He's also written for the New York Times Magazine, Rolling Stone, Spin, and many other fine places. Jeremy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, Pleasure to be your fire starter. Um, (laughs) You're my punkin instigator. Mm -hmm, It's an an important job. I couldn't, nobody else could do this but you. This entire week I've been trying to think about how would Doc Holliday say, I'm your fire starter, as opposed to I'm your huckleberry? I can't mm-hmm, really get mm-hmm. it, but it, but I think it goes a little, it's like, I'm your fire starter. <laughs> <laughs> that was fantastic. I'm your that fire was, starter. Oh my God. I, it's still in the workshop. No, I think you're done. I think right. you nailed it. We're done talking. I don't want to, I can't follow that. <laughs> this is fantastic. <laughs> This is the okay. All right, Jeremy. Yeah, can you tell me where you were and what you were doing when you learned that the Prodigy used to have a live guitar player named Jizzbutt? Walk <laughs> us through that revelation. <laughs> this please. was so. This was about forty-eight hours ago, mm-hmm. and I was sort of looking over some live sets of the Prodigy from 1996 and 97 when they were really blowing up. And I think they have a mm-hmm. kind of a famous set at, at the Phoenix Festival, which is, I think, mm-hmm. somewhere in Europe. And um, kind of skip to Firestarter. And all of a sudden, this guitarist just comes out and he's just like playing one <laughs> charitably two chords. Um, <laughs> but I'll just, I think fact checking, you could just say one chord the okay. entire time. And it's, and honestly, it's great. And, and and then I was just sort of looking at it, and and I do think for the record, it's giz butt. Okay, um, excuse me. That's my it's, that's my mistake. Like it's gif. fine. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I I feel like maybe there's uh, some intentionality of sure of uh, some, some sort of like you know uh, impish. Uh, ah. Maybe you might want to say it the other way, but you shouldn't. Uh, but yeah, he's he's actually a he's actually sort of a. a somewhat renowned punk guitarist uh, mm-hmm. has a couple other bands and has played with a bunch of other people. But but I, I did not know he was a dedicated live touring guitarist. I kind of thought that they just brought out a guitarist for that song um, just to give, to give it a little a little pep uh, for the audience. But no, he's he's been around and does guitar for for them. I think still to this day, I think we'll we'll play with hmm. him. He also runs the Gizbutt Rock Academy. Uh, and his full name is Graham Anthony Butt. I just, mm. just, just facts, <laughs> facts for you. Um, what did you discover in watching Prodigy footage of them at their height? I think it's fair to say in 96, 97, like what stuck out to you about the live Prodigy experience? Well, it's frenetic to say the least. 
It is sort of a proof of life, right? And I think like one of the most interesting things when you look at, um, you know, ephemera and esoterica or anything from the 90s, where you see a bunch of people also enjoying it, sometimes you come across something and and you'd come across, say, the prodigy in a vacuum, right? Like mm-hmm. someone had the fat of the land and you were like, oh, the, oh, it's the album with the crab on the front and then their logo is an ant as well. So, yes. Um, so then sometimes you sort of like Berenstain Bears is like, did it have an ant on the front or was it a crab? <laughs> you don't know. Anyway, so, but when you see something, their performance and you see thousands of people enjoying it. Like, for instance, I remember one of my first memories of The Prodigy was watching the 1997 MTV Video Music Awards. Uh, and it was at Radio City Music Hall and, and um, you know, they had just a bunch of like live in-house performances from, from this, that, and the other thing. And then all of a sudden, sort of 30 minutes into the show, they're like, and now The Prodigy live from the UK. And they cut to uh, this, you know, this, this field, uh, and there are 20,000 people uh, mm-hmm. watching the prodigy perform Breathe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember thinking, what is this? Like, what, what is going <laughs> on? And, and this was, and I don't think, I did not have, did you, did you pay-per-view Woodstock 1994? I did not. I did not. I don't regret that, to be frank, but I did not do that. I did not do that either. So, so I don't, I, at that point in my life, I'm not sure how much live footage of festivals I had seen right. up until that None, point. Basically, yeah. And kind of like as a 13-year-old, it's like, I was pretty blown away by can one band have like, can that many people really like a band? Like <laughs> I, I know me and my friends, that's five people like the red right. chili peppers. So that was, I could count on my hands, but like, and then a bunch of maybe a hundred people liked our local band, but 30,000 people. Is that how many people can really like a band? That, that seemed like a lot to me. Simultaneously. So, yeah. At the same time. Right. And so, so that was, it's this sort of moment of like, oh, this must be really good. This must be important and it must be really popular. And, and I didn't know anything about it. And and of course, I think like it, it wasn't like this difficult music to understand. It was pretty on its face, rowdy and and punky and, you know, like Rage Against the Machine was already there. And like, here's the the British version, only it's less words, you know, like I there like, we wasn't, go. wasn't totally sure like what to make of it at that point. Yeah. Uh, you described it to me and I quite enjoyed this. That, that moment at the VMAs was when you realized electronic music might kick ass. <laughs> and I, I really enjoyed that description. That's That's a lovely revelation to have at 13 or however old you were. My... Um, experience with electronic music up until that point was um, next to nothing. I can't. I can't imagine it wasn't being played in my house, other than the fact that you know, as we all lived through Eurodance, uh, the Eurodance craze of the early nineties. You know, um, but that, I, that just registered as pop music to me, and I think it was market, marketed as such. I was trying to think of like the first sort of electronic song that that registered to me as like oh this rocks and and in fact it was the klf's 3am mm. eternal the that's a great live, one. the live from ssl version which is the one that sort of got traction here in the u.s and it does have that sort of you know guitar riff in it which 
One of the many songs from the 90s that is not really exemplary of the rest of the band's catalog, but, right. but, but, but rather an outlier. But it's still probably, you ask most American audiences of like, name one KLF song. It's like, well, they're they're not going to name, you know, uh, a deep track on Chill Out. They're going to name, right. you know, the Ancients of Moo Moo song. But, but yeah, I, you know, other than that and other than, you know, sort of, bands dabbling in sort of electronics before then, uh, I, I don't think I'd ever really heard electronic music until The Prodigy. Um, that is sort of by by dint of my age and, and where I lived. I lived in a very small town in Wisconsin, and we just sort of, uh, the, the two main sources of um, new music were was the radio and MTV. And if it wasn't mm-hmm. being played on MTV, it it certainly wasn't being played on the radio. We didn't have it sort didn't of like exist. A, it yeah. didn't exist, right? So, so and it was strange because when that's sort of your first, when the prodigy is your first uh, <laughs> taste of what electronic music is, like that, that is kind of a that's like a a big knot to untangle later in your life. I'll tell you that. Sure. Much. <laughs> How is that going for you? Have you untangled it? We're getting there. Now. It's a, yeah, I, it's, it's a lifelong process. Yeah, it's it's like a it's like a big ball of Christmas lights in the basement. You know, <laughs> we're still working on it. Did you buy into Electronica in 1997? Did you believe at any point that it was the future of rock? You know, I I definitely bought into it because I remember buying a Propeller Heads album. So like, <laughs> I you know That's I don't it. know what, you <laughs> bought it. Like they got me. You're committed. That's great. They're great. But yeah, that's you're you're committed. You're pop I'm in, committed. Yeah, yeah. I loved it. You know, because this was also I was still kind of enamored with um, the idea of like computers as this sort of. Um, this object of fascination as opposed mm-hmm. to just sort of like another part of your life. Like they had this sort of kind of cool culture to it, you know, like after hackers and, you know, pre-matrix, there was still this kind right. of countercultural element to it. And I guess like electronic felt countercultural to me in a way, mm-hmm. um, simply because it was so foreign to anybody who didn't know what, what it was like you you couldn't my you know parents or old people couldn't understand where the music was coming from like it's just like are that you know and the sort of the first inklings of people saying oh they're just pressing play uh, on stage it's like well you know (laughs) they're not and like there's a lot of um you know uh talent that goes into the sampling and the production and this that and the other thing but but yeah i i you know it wasn't that I thought it was sort of the future of rock and roll, but it did fill, you know, space abhors a vacuum, right? And so I think it did fill in a gap there. Right. Sort of after grunge fell apart mm-hmm. and before sort of new metal really became ascendant in the latter half of the decade. Yeah, as 99 sort of the, about, yeah. yeah. Right. You know, there was this sort of gap that needed to be filled. And 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 I think there were a couple uh, things like vying for for that ring at that time. Yeah, I remember uh, also in the 97 Video Music Awards, that's when Marilyn Manson played The Beautiful People, right? And, uh. you know, so, and I think, you know, we can talk about this a little more, but but I think aesthetically, it's more like the aesthetics of of the prodigy really sort of signified a a, a turning of uh, the tide in what yeah. rock was going to look like. 
You described, yeah, you said Firestarter to you was spiritually and aesthetically setting the table for new metal. And I was wondering if you regard that as a good thing or not. Unpacking whether new metal is good uh, <laughs> is always kind of a, a we don't have a, that kind of time. We I don't guess, have that. No. We don't have that. I, you know, I don't have the bandwidth on my computer to, mm-hmm. to do that. I, yeah. I, um, when I look at, you know, Keith Flint, right, and he, and he has that sort of inverse mohawk, um, you know, which which could give sort of balding men today just uh, just one more option, really. Um, <laughs> it's on the uh, table. Yeah, it's... exactly. You can do the full shave or the flint, you know. The, the... <laughs> just give me the flint, sir. Give me the flint. <laughs> uh, give me the pumpkin instigator, Yes. <laughs> But there was so there was his sort of his his haircut, which you know that could have been the guy from Coal Chamber. That could have been the guy from Mudvayne. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> and then and then you had and then you had um, Maxim who mm-hmm. wore kilts. Guess who else wore Guess who else wore kilts? And that was big in the new metal. Jonathan Davis, oh, of course. Corn, of course, of course. Maxim also wore custom eye contacts. Wes Borland wore custom eye contacts. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, you're doing it. You're breaking it down. There's these connections to be made. You know, the the yarn and the pushpins are going up on the board. And again, like, and I'm I'm not saying that they presaged it or they predicted it, but in the 90s, there was there there weren't many rivers, right? And so you could just toss something into a big river and see if it floated. And mm-hmm. I think that that's what happened with the prodigy is that they someone just threw them in there and it was like, oh yeah, I guess this is kind of like Corn and Marilyn Manson. And this is something American audience are going to cotton to because there is a nominal frontman and he's singing and there's a sample of a guitar and there's there's a sample of Cool Keith, right? Like you couldn't like American audiences aren't gonna listen to Cool Keith or Ultra Magnetic MCs, but maybe like one line of it, like that can get, you know, put in through a bunch of British ravers and look like it becomes like a kind of a big hit. I was going to ask you if this whole idea of the future of rock comes down to Keith Flint's, like the idea that you need a frontman. You don't even necessarily need a guitar, but it wasn't until we had Keith Flint's in the Firestarter video that, you know, like, oh, we have a true lead singer. Like the collective American brain just cannot process like a band that doesn't have a focal point. No. The, yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. And I, and I think. We didn't, especially in the '90s. There was just there had to be a frontman, you know. Uh, there there had to be somebody whose band it was. And then when you listen to the rest of Fat of the Land, you're like, oh, he he's barely on this, or like <laughs> he, he has maybe t- two other things to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he he was just something that um, that Hewlett. Uh, he was just like a guy that Hewlett met raving, right? <laughs> right, and it was just like. Like he was just a guy and and then became on like as a hype man. I remember I remember there's this and I'm I'm not quoting this verbatim, but I'm getting it close enough where Flint said something to the effect of like, oh, I don't listen to um public enemy for the lyrics. I just I just kind of think it's like fun. I just kind of like hearing <laughs> Flavor Flav say, Yeah, boy. And it's like that that to me is a perfect encapsulation of like what Keith Flint was doing. Like right. he was like there didn't need to be uh, 
content. There just needed to be the comment, right? Or the hype man. Like there did like there didn't need to be the definite article. There just needed to be like the the uh, filigree around it. And and so but it, but then when you turn when you turn something of such little content into the focal point of this band, <laughs> it it just it like it cannot contain all of the attention that it gets, you know. Right. And and clearly when people are like what else do you have to say? Like, do you have anything else going on? And he's like, Oh no, I, no, that's, I just, that was it. That was, that's my thing. I, I'm just, I, I'm just the youth like a cor- good thing. I'm just the youth corrupter. Like what, what do you, what do you want me to do here? The only thing on his resume, uh, <laughs> how much, how much broier was this scene? Then grunge or alternative rock. Like, is it unfair of me? Am I projecting a 2022 sensibility onto a 1997 phenomenon that I'm sort of overwhelmed by the testosterone of all this to an even greater degree than like any rock band I've considered from this era? The testosterone of the prodigy is for sure at the forefront of their entire image and sound. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think you can't, Ignore the fact that MTV was not playing house music very much. <laughs> they were not right. like looking at what was happening, um, you know, in Detroit. Uh, they're not weren't playing Moody Man or Dilla records, or they weren't going down to playing, um, you know, Chicago house music, or they, you know, or they weren't playing ballroom, uh, you know, electronic music that was happening in New York. Like they were like how can we sell rave music and make it kind of capital, like make capitalism mm-hmm. work with it? Um, right. Which is, again, it's like antithetical to the entire rave culture that was, that was <laughs> happening. So, right. so I think to do that, you, a, you had to have, it had to be sort of masculine and edgy and there had to be a, a bit of a, um, you know, prurient, uh, uh, you know, Sexist. I'll go ahead and say, like, like bent to it, um, because that, because that is sort of how you get the young male audience that you know watched MTV at that time uh, to to get onto those things. And you know, I mean, just just to go down the list of like, I, I can't name off the top of my head like a a female or non-binary or LGBTQ like electron like big right. beat artist and I apologize mm-hmm. if there is one just just outside of my vision right now but when you just look at Fat Boy Slim and Crystal Method mm-hmm. and um, the Chemical Brothers and uh, and the Prodigy and Propeller Heads like you know that's that's just off the top of my head but those are all like very sort of um, bro facing, uh, bands, but I think that's sort of what worked in the selling of them. Sure. I, but the prodigy specifically made so many, like either deliberately bad or at least willfully upsetting decisions. Like there's just smack my bitch up, like all of it. There's the Nazi quote in the CD booklet, you know, there's the comeback song that they disowned that used like the word Rahifinol like 50 times. Like, are these super (laughs) smart guys being provocative or are they medium smart guys just being dumb sometimes? Right. We're we're talking about the, Smart dumb guy or dumb smart guy dialectic. It's Correct. Best, like for sure. I think these are dumb dumb guys. <laughs> <laughs> Tough but fair. Tough but fair. There's a quote. Well, okay. This quote maybe this quote maybe makes them smart dumb because this is from a, uh, the 1997 spin profile where 
um, they kind of followed them around on their first little tour, and they they played like small rock clubs because they wanted to, they didn't want to sell them as these as these dance arena people. They wanted to like be like we're a rock band. And Howlett was like, I have a philosophy that our music works on a really dumb level, which is the level that most people understand. <laughs> so I think that might be smart dumb guy stuff mm. because, like, I think he's I think he's aware. I think Howlett was sort of aware of it yeah, uh, and could like step back from it because I do think, you know, there's some cool samples on this record. Like there the are fact, the fact that fired starter samples the breeders right away. And, you know, smack my bitch up kind of does the fact that he takes the um, hook from a cool Keith line. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people might just thought that the prodigy th- made that line up. It's like, well, no, it's a, it's a sample from a rap song. Right. Like. Yeah. And it's and look, that is maybe number 50 on the most offensive cool key lines that, that exist out there. So so like, you know, everybody should be thanking them. They didn't sample something else. But but the fact that 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 sample is the sort of thing that that made that song feel offensive, I think is, you know, that might take a while to unpack um, sure. again. Not, not sure we have the time to do that. But again, like, okay, so maybe that's smart. That's interesting. But then you add the video to smack my bitch up and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, this is, <laughs> this is dumb. This is just dumb. This is just dumb stuff. <laughs> right? <laughs> how did you feel about the smack my bitch up video in 1997 versus how you feel about it now? Take me on that journey. Wow. All right. Well, yeah. so I don't think I watched it in 97, um, but I, I want to say I watched it at some point in high school. Um, and I, I, to set the table, the nineties, you want to know what the nineties love? They love twist endings, right? <laughs> it's we, true. We love, we love a twist ending in the nineties. Sure. We got primal fear, fight club, mm. um, you know, six sense. sense. You, you, we just, just usual suspects, yes. just set it up. And then at the very end, just, just pull the, oh. like pull the rug out, you know? And yeah. so, so I think like this, <laughs> This video, the pump was primed, let's say that, for, for sure. me to love it. Because I was like, oh, is this what makes things art? Like, <laughs> that you just, at the very end, you just do something different yes. than what you've been doing? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what art is. And I, it might be. It might be. <laughs> and the, if the, that's, what, that's what I was taught in the, in the 90s. So, I don't know. So, so, at some point, I was watching this, and I watched a video, and, and you know, it, and it is, for anyone who hasn't seen the video... Um, uh, it is a shot, sort of like a first person, sort of first like shooter, like a video right, game. Yeah, it's like Doom <laughs> in a right. club, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's like um, Duke Nukem, but but like, <laughs> <laughs> but, but sexy, the, yeah. Right, but that but that secret code where you entered in, where you could like throw money yeah, at the there stripper. We go. Um, that's a deep cut. All right, so <laughs> back to the back sure. to the video. Take um, your time. You know, it's it's a yeah. They shoot it in first person, and you see sort of someone kind of wake wake up, and they're they're tossing water on their face. They're clearly hungover. They're going through it. They're they're in a bad way. But then the video sort of takes them on their journey through the night, which includes sort of drinking and getting into fights and buying drugs and doing heroin, drugs and right. heroin and and everything you can imagine. Sort of you know f- filling their body up with. Uh, destructive chemicals, and uh, by the end of the video, that you you think by the behavior, you know, if you're like a just a a simpleton, you're watching this video, <laughs> you're like, 
men, right? Men. <laughs> Give me a break. Toxic but, masculinity. Mm-hmm. But, ah, but you'd be wrong because at mm. the very end, camera pans up to a mirror and it is a woman. Ah, it's a lady. Doesn't that say something a little bit about our society it's and the art. and 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 how we jump to conclusions about people? And which which are is exactly what I thought of when I was 15 years old, right? <laughs> And I think by the time I was I went to college, I would sort of line people up outside of my dorm room and just be like, one at a time, come here. And we're turning the lights off, and you're watching this, you know. Mm-hmm. And and we just sort of, and I and I you do that thing where you where you're showing somebody something and you're kind of watching them mm-hmm. watch it, and mm-hmm. you're you're making them really uncomfortable because they're yeah, trying not to make eye contact with it you. It is very uncomfortable. <laughs> so yeah, so that's so that again, and I think like at some point you know when when i ran out of weed in college and i and i moved on to other things i sure. I, I i had put this behind me and and then you know when i came back to it later in life i was like oh this is awful <laughs> this is terrible <laughs> this is terrible what is what was happening here yeah yeah uh, yes yeah. i was going to ask you about you know being exposed to firestarter as a as a teenager and then considering firestarter as a rock critic you know editing pitchfork reviews of the prodigy like does your opinion of this music change is this a situation where the less context you have maybe the better off you are or the easier it is to enjoy i think in a vacuum the prodigy are really easy to enjoy especially if you just sort of you know, if you're making a, a you know, a, a, a what it, what's it called? If you're making a curls in the squat squat rack playlist, you know what I mean. If you're making kind of a <laughs> yes, that weightlifting yes. playlist, like mm-hmm. absolutely throw that on leg there. day, Great leg, leg day, day playlist, yes. And and I will even go so far as to say that even with some context, like to know now that we have sort of who sampled.com to kind of go through this mm-hmm. and be like, oh, cool, like. The breeders, like that's interesting. Right. Like I wouldn't have picked that out. And they yeah. manipulate samples such that you, it, they're not very obvious. Like right. the the bulls on parade sample and smack my bitch up is like, oh, like you have to sort of s- have somebody tell you that's what it is before you hear it. Um, so I think when when you're talking about context, when it comes to sort of sample context, I actually think they're more interesting. However, when it comes to sort of cultural context and like human context and like what was <laughs> prioritized um versus what was marginalized mm-hmm. that to me is where like things get a little less savory right. when it comes to thinking about the prodigy yeah. um because you just sort of think well like well what else could have happened in this space mm-hmm. you know um could, couldn't there have been something like that was a like why did we have to think that dance music was so macho when it so much of its origins were not you know, right, um, right. and, and it, it was a, it was a space for, you know, for LGBTQ people. It was a space for people who had nowhere else to go, you know, and, and then, uh, and it even rave was, it was, we talked a little bit about earlier, like it was such a this countercultural movement. And then all of a sudden the big beat electronica was sort of sold to America as, um, you know, maybe, maybe like you said, like the next thing in rock or like rock's next phase, um, but it but it fell into just more of the same sort of masculine mainstream uh pop culture and art and uh in hindsight um that definitely bring like dense it a little bit for me you know sure 
to wrap up, the, another thing you said to me that I quite enjoyed, you said, like, I feel like getting into Prodigy and dance music through MTV in 1997 was like getting into Metallica through Stranger Things. Total <laughs> tourist shit, but that was the whole point. Uh, that's wonderful, first of all. Is there a fundamental embarrassment here compared to people who actually knew something about raves and dance music before 1996? Does it hit you completely different if you don't know those things or have experience with those things? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I talk to um, people who were in the rave scene um, and people who uh, perhaps like went to an early uh, Prodigy show um, when they had that hit single, Charlie, you know, Mm -hmm. because that was sort of their first kind of novelty hit. And then, you know, then they would say like, oh, well, they sold out like this is not how they sounded and and they used to be cool ravers and now they'd cut their hair you know the the <laughs> the uh, the crucible that all bands must go through at some point you know yes. um i think there is a fundamental embarrassment but isn't everything embarrassing and isn't a lot of looking back at what you listened to when you were 13 a little embarrassing not at all i don't know um, what you're talking about this is i I find you just sort of have to accept that uh, you can, there is maybe something a little interesting to having experienced this music two different ways, Mm -hmm. once without any knowledge and once with a lot of knowledge. Too much, yeah. Uh, Yeah, exactly. And and I think um, that is sort of the curse of the music writer and the, and the critic (laughs) is that you, one of them. Yes. Right. One of you're right. uh, That you'd sort of learn too much about something and it, and, and then it sort of curdles uh, in your, in your brain. And there, there was, uh, you know, I, I really will never forget that moment of, of watching them on the video music awards and just having my mind being blown by, by, by watching, these, you know, three or four people, uh, if you include uh, Giz Butt, I'm not sure if he was there or not, um, probably, just command a huge crowd. And that, to me, was more powerful than in any context that I that I needed or could have at, at that moment. It, there was just a simple of like, oh, this is, this, this must be what good music is, and I should like this. Um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's an age where sometimes watching uh, something and watching other people enjoying things is all you need to enjoy mm-hmm. yourself. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so drop your leg day playlists when you have that finalized, when you've got that sequenced. I'll put that uh, in the chat. Absolutely. We appreciate that, Jeremy. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for talking. Rob, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much to our guest this week, Jeremy Larson. Thanks as always to our producers, Jonathan Kerma, Justin Sales, and Kai Grady. And thanks very much to you for listening. And now, without further ado, here are the Prodigy with Firestarter. We'll see you next week. <laughs>